Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. There's plenty of attention these days on how social media has been a tool for some Russians to deepen divisions among Americans. Coming up, we'll talk to a professor of digital media at University of Southern California about the specific ways these platforms have been used and whether attention on these tactics is changing the way people use social media today. Sites like Facebook and Instagram have made our world feel much smaller, but how do they impact the way a person feels? Has following the lives of your Facebook friends or your Instagram and Twitter followers multiple times a day, has it started to change how you feel about yourself? Can it make you feel more isolated? Just ahead, we'll hear from a UK researcher who says these feelings can stem from how you're using social media, especially if it replaces face-to-face relationships. At the same time, studies have shown digital media may help reduce loneliness among certain groups, including among the elderly. More on that later. First, how much time do you spend each day on social media? Have you taken steps to reduce the amount of time you're on Facebook or Twitter, Instagram or YouTube? Maybe you avoid all of them. We want to hear from you. 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at wmpr.org. And of course, find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Now, we wanted to learn more about the consequences of our digital appetites these days. My first guest has studied social media among youth among young adults, and he's joining us by phone, Dr. Brian Primack, director of the Center for Research on Media, Technology, and Health, Health rather, at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Primack, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Thank you so much for inviting me. So tell us about the study uh, that you uh, did last year, looking at this relationship between social media and what's called social isolation. Um, How did you conduct this study, and who did you look at? Well, we surveyed a group of almost 2,000 young adults. They were ages 18 to 30. And we looked at how much social media they used and how socially isolated they felt. It's an important distinction because there are a couple of different ways of looking at social isolation. You can say how socially isolated someone actually is and socially isolated in terms of how they feel. And what we were very surprised to see is that there was basically a linear relationship between the two. For every increase in social media use, even by an extra 30 minutes or 60 minutes, there was a proportional increase in people's feeling of isolation. Now, you mentioned you looked at 18 through 30. Why this particular age group? It's a very good question, and it certainly would also be relevant among younger individuals and older individuals. But we looked at this age group because, first of all, there are very, very high rates of social media use in this population. And so we wanted to understand how those very, very high rates are affecting Uh, this group of people. And then secondly, it's also a time when a lot of mental health issues come about. People have a first break of depression. Um, People develop anxiety and that type of thing. And so we thought that this was a particularly important group to start with. 
when you talked about perceived uh, social isolation. So when you're looking at people and they're telling you how long or how many times they might log on to social media or how, how long they spend on these particular sites. So when you think about uh, someone spending maybe too much time, how much time is, did that correlate with their, the sense of being uh, isolated? Yeah, it's a very good question, and that's one of the big reasons that we did this study. We were sort of hoping to find a magic cutoff. We were hoping to say, well, you know, 90 minutes is okay, but 120 minutes is not. However, like I mentioned, what was really interesting about this is we really didn't find those cutoffs. We found more of this straight linear relationship. Um, Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we suggest that people use absolutely no social media, because obviously social media is part and parcel. It's, it's, It's a very important thing in today's world, and it certainly can be used for positive. But it was notable that in this um, large epidemiologic study, um, whether we looked at social media exposure, like you mentioned, as frequency, how many times, or whether we looked at it as the total amount of time, um, either way, we saw this linear relationship with no specific cutoffs. When we talk about social media, what were the specific platforms that people uh, mentioned that they were using, and does that matter? Yeah, it's a very good question. And what we did um, was in order to make sure that the data were as reliable as possible, we only asked about the top 11 platforms that were the most popular at the time of this study. Why 11? Because those 11 platforms, um, they accounted for 97% of all social media use at the time of the the survey, which is now a couple years ago. So these were uh, platforms like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, um, etc. We then combined all of that use into a, you know, scores that dealt with frequency and dealt with Um, total time. The reason why that's a better way to do it than just to say to somebody, how much time do you think you spend, is that 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 can't, that's not necessarily as reliable. But when you ask people about specific platforms, they're able to measure it a little bit better. So when you were uh, surveying, again, these 2,000 participants, uh, two explanations uh, could be uh, as they um, were on social media for a greater period of time than someone that may just casually log on and off, uh, that might be impacting how they're feeling about whether they're feeling isolated or alone. Or there's the other hand where people who may already feel lonely are going to social media to try to have some kind of interaction. Yeah, no, it's a a very good point and a very important caveat of this uh, particular study that, um, you know, I think was interesting in itself and touched a nerve just because we know that there's a relationship. But what you're pointing out is we really don't know until we can do more longitudinal studies what direction the relationship goes. Is it that people are completely okay and happy and then they're logging on to social media and then they're starting to feel maybe somewhat isolated because it seems like everyone else is connecting and they don't feel like they are quite as much. Um, Or is it that people are already lonely to start with and so they don't feel like going out in person And so then they turn to social media. And as with many things in social science, I would say that the answer is probably some combination of the two. And um, 
the reason that that's uh, of potential concern is we could be dealing with a vicious cycle. We could be dealing with someone who, say, you know, they are feeling a little blue, so they don't feel like going out tonight. But then when they log on to uh, social media, those feelings get compounded because social media has such a way of making um, us feel like everyone else is more successful, uh, more happy, um, having a better time. This is where we live. Today, we're learning about how social media affects us as individuals. My guest, Dr. Brian Primack from University of Pittsburgh, studied young people and found that frequent social media users often felt more isolated compared to individuals who logged on far less. Now, if you want to weigh in on your social media use and uh, what you think is the dynamic that makes people log on more often and just talking about your personal habits, you can join the conversation, 860 and find us on social media, Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. We also wanted to talk about how social media use is affecting adolescents. So joining me now in studio is Dr. Claudia Califano, Assistant Clinical Professor at the Yale Child Study Center. She also is a full-time child and adolescent, has a full-time child and adolescent psychiatric practice in Guilford, Connecticut. Uh, Claudia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Lucy. So um, unlike uh, Dr. Primack, who is doing this research, you're a clinician having face-to-face interaction with adolescents. And what are some of the dynamics that you're seeing when you're talking about social media use among adolescents? So one of the interesting components, I think, that differs a little bit from the population that Dr. Primack is looking at is that when we're thinking about adolescents, we're really paying a lot of attention to development. And we're thinking a lot about how a child is beginning to form more complicated relationships, how they're learning to interact in a more socially complex world. And with the introduction of social media, there's been really what I consider a seismic shift in the development of children and adolescents. So depending upon what age of adolescence, whether we're looking at early adolescence, mid-adolescence, or later adolescence, I see very different presentations in my office in regards to how children report to me about social media. So what are they, what are they, what sites are they using, and how do they talk about um, the amount of time or how they bring in the social media into their daily lives and what the impact is on them? So Facebook is for old people. <laughs> and primarily, I think Snapchat and, well, there's Snapchat, there's Instagram. Twitter, there's Instagram. Interesting with Instagram, I'll tell you something. Instagram, there are really two Instagram sites often for many children. There's their Finsta account, which is their fake Instagram account. And then there's their Rinstagram account, which is their real Instagram account. And I think that even that in particular reflects one of the ways that adolescents have come to experience social media. The real Instagram account is often the one in which they really can, um, they sort of put out there to everybody the good pictures, the nice pictures, this is me with my family, this is you know, me at a nice party, these kinds of things. And then they have a smaller group, which is a much more selective group, where they really feel like they can talk about what's going on. One of my patients yesterday who I was asking about this, I said, listen, I'm going to be on this radio show. Talk to me about what you think about these things. She calls it her rant account. 
She said this is sort of a protected space in which she can really talk about what's going on, and she doesn't feel like it's going to get out there to too many people. Is that, excuse me, is that dangerous for, uh, we already know that um, at times it's hard for adolescents to communicate how they're feeling, uh, maybe to their parents or to other adults. But if they're using this, in, you know, this social media as an outlet for them, is that handicapping them a little bit more in terms of talking to someone? So I think one of the things that's happening, again, I think there's a real um, sort of uh, generational divide here. So if you think about it, when we were children, none of this existed. So now we have children, and we are not actually educating them or talking to them about how you have one of these accounts. So if we think about all of the ways that our parents have taught us to do things, so they tell us how to say hello, they tell us, you know, we reflect upon what's a good friend. (laughs) Please, thank you. Um, looking people in the eye, what's a good friend, what's a bad friend, what do you do when someone doesn't say anything nice. And now we're in a generation where we hand over a phone and we don't talk to them about how do you text, what are the ways that you communicate with people. If you go on one of these sites, you know, what is an appropriate, quote unquote, appropriate post, what's not an appropriate post, What what do you do if someone says something very cruel, what do you do? What do you do if someone says that they're going to kill themselves? These are things that are really occurring in the day-to-day lives of adolescents, and these are the things that are actually filling up the offices of the social workers and the schools. Well, we've heard uh, the term screen addiction, and again, um, there have been studies done on on the release of dopamine yes. when you're looking to see if someone's liked your your post or the constant checking to see if there's some kind of approval. It impacts our feeling of gratification. I mean, how dangerous is that? Um, I think it, it it's it's pretty dangerous. I mean, you know, for a developing brain to think that we're priming sort of a, a brain to sort of have this kind of response um, is is very concerning. You know, sort of where this is going to lead for different people. We really are, are we have not caught up in terms of the studies. Um, I will have a lot of parents talk about. And this is a very frequent thing that I hear. You know, I'll hear about a child's entire life and the parents will say, but, you know, the one time that my child gets really upset is when I try to take the phone away. So, and I, ex- I educate the children on this dopamine release. I educate the parents on this dopamine release. For parents who are listening right now, what are some uh, recommendations for how they should be talking to their kids about using their cell phones, their tablets? So I think one, you know, first sort of having an ed- being educated about the ways that we do interact with these tablets and these screens and the way that they do affect our brains. But I also, one of the things that I'm really trying to encourage parents to do is really sort of take a mentoring model when it comes to giving your child a phone and really getting on the phone with them and saying, you know, as I said before, really talking about how do we text, how do we present ourselves on social media, and opening up that dialogue. And for older adolescents, parents have said to me, well, what do I do? I already handed it over. They're already on all of these sites. I said, you know what? You say, listen, I need to take a step back. You know, I didn't know about these things before. I really want to know more about what's going on. So let's sit down and talk about these things. Aren't there apps or ways that parents can uh, check in on what their, their children are writing on social media? There that are, can be tricky. For, right? <laughs> for every app, I, there's probably an app that uh, has been developed for someone to get around it. Um, but, you know, people will, a lot of parents that I know when their children first open these accounts, they say, listen, I'm going to be on the account with you. And so they follow their children along in the account until their children figure out how to not be followed. 
Uh, I want to turn back to our other guest, Dr. Brian Primack from, from the University of Pittsburgh, director of the Center for Research on Media Technology and Health. We heard uh, Dr. Califano say that um, there's a lot that still needs to be studied. So how what, what will you be working on next in terms of, of learning more about causation and why it is that when people are on social media, it can impact, again, this, this feeling of perceived isolation? What are further studies that need to be happening? Oh, it's a, it's a great question. And, um, you know, as we talked about before, and as you mentioned just now with regard to causation, we do need to look at longitudinal data and see if we can tease out a little bit about the chicken and the egg, what comes first. Um, however, I think that, you know, some other things that, um, that you know, Claudia is bringing up that are, are very important is that, you know, social media um, is not one specific thing. And, you know, just to criticize my own study, um, you know, I think it was an important study to do to start the conversation, but we look just at overall social media use. Um, and as you know, you can spend two hours on social media, but in very, very different ways. One person might spend two hours liking pictures of cute puppies and babies, and that's it. And another person might spend those same two hours, um, you know, arguing violently about um, very hot-button topics. And obviously, these are probably very, very different experiences that have very, very different psychological correlates. And so I think one of the uh, frontiers, one of the things we need to do in the future is to do studies still of, of high quality and, and using large samples, nationally representative and that type of thing, but also get to some of the more specific contextual ways that people use social media. Um, and as an example, is it more of they're, you know, engaging with more positive, quote unquote, um, messages, or are they engaging with more negative uh, messages? And sure enough, in our pilot studies, at least, we have found that when people are exposed to many, many positive messages, that it is, does seem to actually be reducing their uh, risk of depression. Um, however, when they're exposed to more of these negative um, stimuli, um, it significantly increases their risk of depression. So one of the reasons that we might have been seeing this overall negative effect is that when we go on to social media, we're going to get a little bit of both. And if somehow we could get pure positive experience, it might actually be more beneficial to us in terms of mental health. But because we can't and we get some of both, the negative can end up um, outweighing the positive. We'll be talking more about some of the, the benefits to social media coming up in the show. But Claudia, do you wanted to add something before we had to break? Yeah, I think that one of the differences that I see in adolescents, unfortunately, is that I think that there often can be less positive. Um, and I'm, I'm going to read a quote, actually, from someone um, uh, that I got yesterday when I asked her about this. This is actually a very healthy, well-adjusted girl who's doing very well in school. And I, and I asked her, and she said, you know, the most unkind and cruel things are said on social media. That's why I really don't go on it. And this girl has a Snapchat account and two Instagram accounts. She said, if I scroll through and I see all of this that's not totally real stuff, then I just simply feel badly about myself. And why would I want to do that? She said, that's why I just like my rant account. And another girl said to me, although it's been proven to 
bring people together, it also destroys relationships, and it sets unreasonable standards for teens, and it harms our self-esteem, especially because people don't need the confidence they usually need when they talk to each other face-to-face. Well, we want to thank you for bringing that uh, to our attention. It's something that we hear often uh, from young people, and it's not as easy as just not logging in, right? Mm -hmm. Because then maybe they're missing out on something, or there's that peer Mm -hmm. pressure that, well, why aren't you on Instagram with your Finsta? And what's the other one? Uh, Rinsta. Rinsta. (laughs) Can you tell I don't use Instagram? We want to thank you, uh, Dr. Claudia Califano, Assistant Clinical Professor at the Yale Child Study Center. She also has a full-time child and adolescent psychiatry practice in Guilford. We thank you for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. Now, Dr. Primack is going to stay with us because, again, we're talking about social media. We want to know more about the way the platforms are used to share opinions, but also how specific sites can affect our emotional health, our interpersonal relationships. Coming up, we're going to hear about the negative effects of spending too much on social media, but also the upsides. We'll talk to a researcher in the UK, and we'll take your calls, too. How do you use social media? Do you love it or hate it? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266, and find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about social media and its impact on us personally as well as how we relate to others. We, of course, want to hear from you. Pick up the phone. Don't just tweet at us. Uh, the number 860-275-7266. On the phone with me is Dr. Brian Primack, Director for Research on Media, Technology, and Health at the University of Pittsburgh. We just heard about his study of young adults and how their social media use can impact their own perceptions of feeling isolated. We also talked about other sites um, beyond Facebook like Instagram. I should say I do have an Instagram account, but I literally just post pictures of my dogs and my children. So I'm obviously not using it to its full capability, as I've, I'm now learning. But joining the conversation now is Dr. Rebecca Nolan, psychology researcher who studies uh, loneliness and social and mental health at the University of Manchester in the UK. Uh, Rebecca, welcome to the show. Hello, hi. So I know you've been studying loneliness in the UK for some time, but it's now become a focus of national attention. Tell me what's happening. Yeah, um, the government has announced a a minister in the UK for um, loneliness. So there's quite a focus in the UK on reducing loneliness across um, life course, really. Um, For quite a long time, the focus has been on elderly populations. But we're beginning to realise in the UK that we have high levels of loneliness in other um, age groups as well. So um, there's a focus nationally on reducing loneliness in the UK. That's interesting. So it's being viewed as a public health issue. Um, why did it become, why did it get so much attention? What was the breaking point, so to speak? I, I think there's been a number of campaigns in the UK, and rightly so, to look at um, changing the focus from looking at elderly and perhaps socially isolated people to realize that people can be lonely um, despite being surrounded by people, which I think has been a really important move forward. Um, but yeah, in the UK, we now have this um, kind of negativity about loneliness, um, which I'm not sure is, is entirely correct. Often we look at loneliness as being a positive state of feeling that makes you reconnect with other people. And I think that's important that that message goes out. It is okay to feel lonely. Um, it's not necessarily going to lead to poor health. It's only when it's experienced in a chronic way for a number of years and you can't overcome that feeling that you will begin to feel poorly or it will have health implications on you. Um, 
I think it's a shame in a way that we're, it's good that we're seeing it as a public health issue and taking it quite seriously because I don't think in the UK we've done that for a long time. When you but talk about... That people, yeah, that people still realise that it's okay to feel lonely. You just need to um, reconnect with other people. When you talk about health issues, so uh, leading to depression or anxiety? I think there's been quite a lot of research Nas- um, internationally, um, not all of it coming from the UK, quite a lot of it's come from America actually, um, that's shown that um, being lonely increases our risks of heart disease, our risks of obesity, um, early mortality. And there's been an awful lot of studies that have shown now that there's this reciprocal relationship between loneliness and depression, um, that if you um, are experiencing depression, you may become more lonely or lonelier. Mm. Um, and then if you're lonely, that might lead to depression. So certainly mental health issues as well as physical health issues. Now, when we're talking about social media earlier, uh, when you look at this focus on loneliness in the UK, um, how is social media used as either a factor or a possible solution to help certain groups deal with that feeling of isolation? Yeah, that in itself is quite an interesting question because um, there often is quite a lot of media, in fact, that, um, that's very negative about social media. But there are certain populations that are using social media and other mechanisms online to reduce loneliness. So, for example, um, iPads have been given to um, elderly populations, and that has um, resulted in decreases in their loneliness, largely because they're using Skype or they're using social media to connect with family and friends. Um, So it's reducing their social isolation. So then we get reductions in loneliness. Oh, we got a comment um, online, uh, on Twitter, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, a listener who uh, created a, a downtown dwellers uh, social group online and is using it now in the new town that he lives in, and says there's a strong argument to be made that it can be done right to create community. Uh, your response, Rebecca? Oh, that, that's amazing that that's coming through, because I think that's the message I've been trying to um, get out there, in the fact that we've had we've started to kind of because we're trying to find what the cause of this rising loneliness is. Um, We're very quick to blame social media. And I think there are ways in which we can utilize social media that can result in increasing loneliness or not really helping us at all. So it's not that we increase in our loneliness, we just stay the same. But then there are certain ways of using it which reduce in loneliness. I just mentioned one there, you know, um, helping people that are isolated to not feel so isolated. Um, And that's a nice example of that, really, that... Um, people quite often comment about setting up forums or chat rooms to talk to like-minded people or to connect with people with similar issues to them. Um, and it's a way of feeling that you're more connected. And also having friendships and relationships with people that you wouldn't necessarily be able to have in real-time life. So um, certainly students talk a lot about being able to connect with people um, outside of the country and they have friendships similar probably to when um, we were younger and we had pen pals, um, but now you can have a um, synchronous conversation. So that's much better and much more um, ways to be connected to people that you could never form a friendship. So you could have a friendship with somebody in America, but be, be in the UK and be able to have a synchronous conversation with them or even go on Skype and, and watch each other whilst you're communicating. I mean, really, that's quite remarkable. And that message seems to be being missed, really, in what we're, what we're talking about when we focus on um, the negatives of social media.
On the phone with me is Rebecca Nolan, psychology researcher who studies loneliness and social and mental health at the University of Manchester in the UK. Uh, she, as well as colleagues from the University of Chicago, uh, studied uh, the relationship between loneliness and social internet use, uh, including using Facebook and Twitter, to see that uh, whether there's a correlation between how often uh, someone is using social media and is it in if it's associated with loneliness. Uh, but you also found, Rebecca, that that relationship is complex. Uh, there's uh, two um, hypotheses in the research, one based on displacement and the other on stimulation. Can you break this down for us? Yeah, I mean, we were using hypotheses that are already there in the literature. So the, the concept that if you um, are unhappy with your social interaction and you want to find a way to distract yourself from that kind of social pain and you go on social media to kind of distract yourself of that social pain or to just occupy yourself, then it can, it might result in increases in loneliness. It's certainly associated with loneliness if you use it in that way. But whereas if you use um, social media as a way to make new friendships or form um, virtual friendships um, and reconnect with people, connect with new people, then it's likely to be associated with decreases in loneliness or certainly not increases in loneliness. What's important, though, is if those friendships can be made outside of social media or, or um, outside of a virtual world, that people should do that because we, there's certainly evidence to suggest that if you maintain all of your social interaction um, via social media, you, it's associated with decreases in loneliness. With one caveat there, if you're very socially isolated because of morbid, um, mobility problems, it probably it's not going to be an issue that you have those friendships because you're limited in your ability to have friendships in on per in person. Um, if I've explained that well enough, there. Uh, this is where we live. Again, we're talking about social media and the impact on individuals, including these interpersonal relationships. Um, also on the phone with us is Dr. Brian Primack from the University of Pittsburgh. I was curious at your thoughts on the research Rebecca and her colleagues have done. Well, I think that uh, Rebecca is bringing up some very good points and very valuable points. I mean, um, she's really underscoring that this is very much a double-edged sword. Um, and so even though we hear in the media about a lot of the large studies like ours um, that, uh, you know, that sort of demonstrate uh, potential risk, we, we really need to think about um, the specific populations that also are going to benefit um, and, it, you know, this is the way it is with any large epidemiologic study. Um, and I think that that is an important caveat to bring out is that when we find, you know, there is a three times risk of depression among people who use more social media, that is, you know, in the entire population. Uh, and after waiting for um, all the sociodemographic variables and, and controlling for things. And what that means is that, you know, there very well may be individuals um, in that sample and even groups of people who are getting the opposite, who are using social media and getting benefit. And so I think that, you know, what may be going on here, um, you know, related to what I was mentioning before, is just that um, when we look at these large epidemiologic studies, um, we're seeing this overall tendency that I think we as a society are just not necessarily all using it to its best benefit. And so over time, I think that by understanding more of the negatives 
and more of the positives and then sharpening that edge of the sword that is about the positives and trying to dull the edge of the sword that is about the negatives, then we really will be able to have a positive impact on public health. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Jennifer's calling from Shelton. Jennifer, go ahead. Hi, I have a fifth grader, and my husband and I are really struggling on how to address social media with her. We've kept her off of it, but every day she goes to school, and she hears her friends talking about the conversations they had the night before on Snapchat and the things that they're doing online, and I think she's far too young to be on social media. She doesn't really know how to handle it. There's things coming at her that she can't really process, I think, that way. But yet all her friends are on it. So I feel like I'm fighting against other parents' decisions to let their kids on social media. Um, I'm curious, uh, because you're you're weighing uh, the benefits and the negatives to allowing your daughter to, to continue using it, despite, um, you know, what you had mentioned. Has it impacted how you or your husband use fa- uh, Facebook or Twitter or any other social media? Um, well, actually, that's an interesting comment, because there was one time that um, I had taken a picture of my daughter, and she found it to be kind of an embarrassing picture, and we just thought it was funny, but she was horrified at the thought that I would put it on Facebook, and I had never even thought of that as something that stressed her out or something that she thought about the way that I used my Facebook, because I put a lot of pictures of my family up there, and we talk about what we do, and I, it really saddened me to that that was something that she thought about she was concerned about how that how I was portraying her on Facebook so yeah I do curb my use based on how she perceives it too that's interesting thank you for your call Jennifer I'm going to ask uh, Rebecca to weigh in a little bit on what you were saying Um, I understand Rebecca you've also done some studies about uh, with young people uh, on how they're using social media yeah we've we've looked at um, 14 year olds and the reason that we looked at 14 year olds is because schools that we were doing research with were telling us that 14 is where they start to have really quite serious issues with bullying on Facebook and um, issues about children having um, concerns about things that have been said about them or things that have been put on Facebook. So this seems to be a very critical age. Um, And some of the things that the schools were telling us that children were experiencing was actually quite alarming. So I kind of share... Um, your concerns. It was Jennifer, wasn't it? Yes. Um, I, I think it's really difficult as a parent, and I think it's the same thing. I remember when my children were younger and we were trying to discuss whether they should watch certain programs on television or films, and then worrying that they were sli- kind of sli- slightly outside of the social group because they didn't understand what was happening. But it, it, I think you're doing the right thing there by limiting. I think it's already come up in the discussion that we're, what we need to look at, because a lot of the research has been conducted in 18 to 30-year-olds and older populations. There's not so much research that's looked at the younger populations and the impact. Um, and what we need to be aware of with that age group and, and younger is that they're, not, they're developing their own social identities. And things that get said about them can be very harmful and can have a neg- very negative impact on their own feelings about themselves. And I think that parents need to judge how... Um, developed their child is and how um, confident they are to cope with that sort of negativity and like it's already been pointed out for as many kind of negative comments you're going to get positive comments and vice versa so it's important to limit perhaps the contact that they the time that they have and really it's about making sure that they have positive um, role models and positive influences in their life. 
You know, I'm curious, Rebecca, again, depending on uh, everyone's views of social media is different depending on their own experience uh, uh, with it. And uh, we know that social media isn't going away anytime soon, although coming up we're going to hear how um, the number of users in uh, North America for Facebook is actually going down. But there's always going to be another site uh, that attracts uh, people's attention, whether uh, they're young or the elderly. So what is a good approach for people when they're thinking about getting, logging on to these sites? I think that we really need to teach, um, particularly our children and adolescents, how to use um, these mechanisms. And, and in some respects, it, it isn't going away. So that kind of mass reaction to everything we do, if we put it on Facebook and um, comments that we get, um, it's going to continue. But we really need to teach our children and adolescents the impact of that an understanding of the fact that... Um, what they say stays there, what they say impacts on each other's life, and how to use social media in the correct way, in a positive way, and sending out messages about um, positivity and supporting each other. I mean, certainly um, for children that use it as their mechanism for social support, um, it, it's not helpful. And I think this is the thing, is that although we can, it's a double-edged sword has been mentioned, Children and older people who are often um, lonely or um, have mental health issues are not necessarily going to be the ones that use it in a way that is positive for them. Um, and that, that's, that's kind of another message in what we're saying, really, as researchers, in that we need to be very mindful that those people that really do need to socially connect or do need to get positive encouragement from other people might not find that on social media. Are there efforts in the UK when we, we hear about how there's connections between um, the elderly and helping them feel uh, more connected, that social media can be a good thing? Are there efforts to educate them on, on like the right ways to use it, not to be... Yeah, I don't um, think we have that issue with the elderly population. I think because they're socially often socially isolated, um, we don't have the, the, the negative impacts of social media in elderly populations, often just giving... Um, somebody the means to connect with other people online and often they have got families and friends and it's the ability to connect with those people or they can join forums or chat groups um, so, so really we don't have that kind of negative impact of social media with elderly populations. Well, I want to thank Dr. Rebecca Nolan, psychology researcher who studies loneliness and social and mental health at the University of Manchester in the UK. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Also on the phone with us was Dr. Brian Primack, Director of the Center for Research on Media Technology and Health at University of Pittsburgh. Uh, Dr. Primack, thank you, too. Okay, thank you so much. After the break, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, we've heard how Russians have used social media to highlight the divisions among Americans. Has this tactic changed your views or how you use Facebook, YouTube, and other digital platforms? We'll speak to an expert in social media and psychology after the break. And we want to hear from you, too. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking about the effects of social media on individuals, but social media has been used as a tool to try to affect the way groups interact with each other. The latest fallout centers around efforts by Russians who used Facebook to disseminate fake news during the election to most recently exploiting the divisions on gun laws in this country after the latest mass shooting in the U.S. Now, have these tactics changed the way Americans are using social media today? For more on this, we're joined on the phone by Dr. Karen North, professor of digital social media at the University of Southern California's Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. Uh, Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So we've heard uh, over the last couple of years about the way social media has been used to influence uh, the way people may vote or just their uh, their views or deepening divisions on very controversial uh, topics. Uh, can you maybe update us on um, some of the tactics that are still being used today? Well, I mean, that's a huge question, but <laughs> The, um, the, the most interesting piece of this is that the way that social media platforms have developed over the years is that they collect data about us in order to create good experiences for us, to curate the experience so that each one of us feels that our experience on that platform feels just right, like we're at the right place. And they use the same data and sometimes more of it to sell targeted advertising so that brands can buy ads that target people who are most likely to be interested in buying those ads or to create ads that are most targeted to you for that brand, to tailor it. And what, um, what happened with the Russians, and by the way, has been happening for years, not just with Russians but with others, is that um, they use the data that we have, the algorithms, to tailor a message and the message is actually meant for political persuasion. So the reason that this gets very mucky in the, you know, in the discussion is that we, we in the audience, we like to talk about the fake news, but what it really is is targeted advertising, which is mostly legal and can be incredibly persuasive because it's not just listening to NPR and hearing a story and then discussing it. It's that each one of us may receive a different story a story tailored to be most engaging to each one of us and then to persuade us in a very strategic, tactical way. So they're looking at the data, the what we have liked on social media, who are in our circle of friends, to then cater certain uh, ads or uh, posts that show up in our feeds? Yes. So, um, so we, you know, we all know that we're targeted based on our demographics, you know, gender and um, income and geographic area, but actually what you said is exactly how they were doing it. They take the, the demographic information and then they add to it sort of information from your social world, your online social world, but especially they can now look at keywords that you've written or searched or um, engaged with. They could look at types of posts or you know people's articles or comments that you've either liked or shared or commented on and they can develop a pretty robust robust picture of who you are at least you know by groups of people like they can you could become part of a group that likes one has has an affinity or a strong passion for something and then they can create content for you that agrees with your strong passion i mean the most sort of sinister version of this just to give an example because talking about it you know hypothetically is a little bit hard to grasp but um, for example, one of the things that was done is that they took people who were really passionate about Black Lives Matter in favor of Black Lives Matter, 
and they crafted messages that were in favor of Black Lives Matter and actually went beyond most people's knowledge so that it looked like there was an opinion leader or a thought leader that we might, you know, people who are part of that group might want to follow. And so they started putting up information, and as people read that information and became riled up and excited that they were finding somebody who could, you know, not only support them but actually go a step further, then some of those messages then turned into anti-Hillary Clinton messages. Mm-hmm. So, so the sinister part of that is that you get a message that's tailored to your passion and then tries to push you toward a belief that is antithetical to ordinarily what that group would be. Uh, we mentioned uh, fallout after the elections. Uh, what kind of pressure, uh, remind us the kind of pressure that was put on Facebook, which is a private company, on how they may change the way they do targeted advertising. And does that, whatever changes they've come up with, is that enough? So, I mean, you know, uh, let me just start by saying I'm not a lawyer. So my opinion about what's legal and not is just my own opinion. But, you know, you have to remember that what they're dealing with is Facebook and Twitter and the others, we're we're all just selling advertising. And from what I've heard, it was completely legal to do that. And the gap in the logical world is that we have a lot of laws and regulations for what you can and cannot do in terms of not just political advertising, but all advertising in traditional media. And my favorite one is that you have to announce who paid for or who sponsored the ad. So when you watch a television ad or listen to a radio ad, you hear a message and you hear this message was paid for by this group or this individual, and a candidate would ordinarily have to say, I've endorsed this or I've approved this ad. And those rules have not yet, yet been extended to, the dig- to digital media. And so it was sort of a free-for-all that, that various entities, including the Russians, could buy ads and never disclose um, who was sponsoring it. So it looked like a news story or it looked like a post from a friend that had been shared, but in fact it was strategically crafted political persuasion. persuasion. So, so I think that the, you know, the fix is that, or a, like a major fix, is to extend those laws. And my joke is that if you're listening to a message that's telling you to vote for or against something or to support somebody or not, and at the beginning or end of it, it says this message paid for by the Kremlin, no matter what the message said, you would think twice about whether or not you should be persuaded by it. Um, I had mentioned earlier in the show that numbers of uh, users in, the, in North America has actually decreased for Facebook. Is, this, do you, is there anything that's been studied to see that it's because of this attention on how um, social media has been used uh, and, and these, uh, sending out these automated bots to amplify extreme perspectives? It's a really good question. I mean, you know, we only have the data that Facebook discloses. And, you know, they've recently said that because they've removed some of these ads um, and they're not allowing some of these stories, that, um, that their numbers are down. You know, there are a lot of people who speculate that not only were their North American, you know, especially U.S. numbers decreasing, but people think that there's less engagement. People are spending less time on Facebook. And, um, you know, I, I personally think that it's all about the experience, and I think that the experience right now not not just that. The experience has, has become a little bit less personal. And you look at the sort of successes currently 
of Snapchat, which has intentionally created a personal-only experience. You have to go outside of the regular experience to get sort of um, sponsored content versus Facebook where it's integrated into your content where you could be distracted or you, know, you have to keep scrolling through paid content in order to find your friends. I, I think that they've made a mistake in that way, and they're trying to revert back, but it'll be interesting to see what they can do. Pe people only hang out online or in the physical world in places that are, you know, like a, the, a good fit for them. And, um, and Facebook has become, you know, people are saying a little bit less of a good fit, partially because of this, but it, it predated this. Uh, we know that social media, again, has been used as a tool uh, to help further divisions among Americans. But you've also written about um, how social media can actually help encourage empathy. So, uh, you know, it, it's, um, yeah, it's a terrific question. I mean, I like to stay balanced in your previous, I liked your previous guests also in talking about the value of social media. And you have to remember that you know, for, for popular people or for people who work in social work environments, you know, in like sort of offices where there are a lot of people hanging out, there, there's an opportunity for social interaction. But a lot of people, for a lot of different reasons, are more isolated or they have esoteric interests or passions or hobbies or illnesses and conditions. And it's very hard sometimes to find people in your physical world with whom you would like to share experiences and you know there's somebody out there that you might be able to connect with and the internet or digital allows you to find people no matter what your interests are so there's that opportunity is the first thing you can actually find people to empathize with you and for whom you know with whom you could empathize based on your own lives but the other thing is that the huge game changer with um, social media and with just the digital experience is that it allows us in real time to feel as if we are with people experiencing an experience with them. And so and you, you see this with things like ridiculously the Kardashians who've been so good at letting us feel as if we are with them in their experience, we're sharing their lives with them, we feel like we are their personal friends and they're whispering in our ears or bringing us into, I don't know what, the nail salon with them. Um, and it's that opportunity to feel that you have a personal connection to go to this you know to the scene or the site of an experience whether it's positive or or tragic that allows people to empathize because we feel like we have a personal connection and we feel like we're there with them i guess the flip side of that is how long uh, we have that feeling before we're on to something else but we have to to leave it there unfortunately dr karen north professor of digital social media at university of southern california's annenberg school for communication and journalism thank you for joining us today uh, we appreciate your perspective on this thank you for having me this is where we live i'm lucy nalpathangel today's show produced by carmen baskoff special thanks to lydia brown and our wmpr intern julius brown also our technical producer is kion wolf thanks for listening and check us out on twitter <laughs>